tonight, what we're going to do is go over some of the ground that we thought about last week, the central chapters of the book of Revelation, and try and bring it all together in a slightly different way. And uh, the title I've given it is Conquering the Cosmic Fraudster. Now, fraud, I think, is something that we are all fascinated with. I don't know whether you watch Hustle on TV, but it's one of my favorite programs. Totally outrageous. It's hilarious. It's witty. It's fun. It's basically about a team of grifters or con artists who earn their living by pretending to be what they're not. And the general scheme of the series, they only seem to go after the bad guys, and so that's why we love them. So they're portrayed as sort of Robin Hood characters, and that makes it all right. And there's been quite a sort of type of genre of films as well. There's Ocean's Eleven movies, or the more tragic Spielberg film, Catch Me If You Can, with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks, which I think is actually a very moving film in many ways. But the running thread of these films is that they all get us, as the audience, rooting for the con men. We're on their side, and we want them to succeed. We want them to pull off the con, and thus have our morality senses been twisted. Now, that's all well and good in fiction, but in real life, fraud is neither acceptable nor moral. It is destructive, cruel, and it always leaves victims in its wake. But what we must recognize is that it is much more common a problem than we realize. And I'm not talking about ripping off the tax man or getting your own back on some dodgy financial trader or something like that. No, I'm talking about the spiritual fraud that is being perpetrated every day of every year in every land and every generation. It is that common. And that real. For it is the spiritual fraud that lies at the very heart of the spiritual battle of this book, the book of Revelation. And so it needs exposing. We need to expose the fraud. Joseph Goebbels, who was uh, Hitler's propaganda minister, once said this, If you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. If you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. What many people don't actually realize is that he was referring, he was referring to Winston Churchill's government. He went on to write, The English follow the principle that when one lies, one should lie big and stick to it. They keep up their lies even at the risk of looking ridiculous. Which is a rather extraordinary thing to say, coming from Goebbels. And it's astonishing because it's probably never truer than of the Nazi government. The bigger the lie, the less likely it will be rejected. This is what Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf. The struggle is that in the big lie, there is always a certain force of credibility because the broad masses of a nation are always more easily corrupted in the deeper strata of their emotional nature than consciously or voluntarily. In other words, the bigger the lie, the more credible and the more gullible people will be. But what makes it credible in the first place? Well, the spiritual fraud in the book of Revelation that we're going to expose tonight is as big as it gets. It's not possible to have a bigger lie. It dares to take God on, not by an outright attack, because that would be too obvious. 
and too easy to spot. No, the fraud here is basically, um, it is the most audacious fraud imaginable. Basically, what is being perpetrated here is nothing short of divine identity theft. In the book of Revelation, that is what the enemy is doing. Now, we know from the New Testament that Satan is the great deceiver, the cosmic liar. And this is how Jesus described those who were in his thrall. He's, uh, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in John 8. And these were people who could not accept that his mission came from God. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We must never forget that. Now that is in marked contrast, of course, to what God is like. Marked contrast. So here's a famous verse from Paul's letter to Titus, Titus 1 verse 2. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised from the beginning of time. We've talked about the promises of God being fulfilled already, and it's a fundamental and crucial theme of the Bible. And it's fundamental to everything we're going to hold on to if we believe it in the book of Revelation, that we can trust God, that he doesn't lie. But basically, before we even get into the book of Revelation, we see that the lie, the liar rather, is contrasted with the faithful one. Now, you'll see on this chart, and what I would love you to do is just spend a f- you know, 10, 15 minutes or so just working through the chart, particularly, I think, for the, because of time, work through the middle bit where it contrasts Christ with the beast. Do you see that bit on the table? What I'd love you to do is to just work through those verses and see how the deceiver, Satan, tries to pull off his fraud. What does he do? to try and imitate the Christ, okay? So just with people sitting next to you, just get into groups and uh, compare Christ with the beast, all right? Right, do it. Okay. Obviously, that is a very brief exercise, and uh, there's plenty more to, to look at. Uh, But I wonder if anything struck you in particular, any uh, things that uh, you hadn't sort of quite picked up on before or things that uh, were of interest? Anything you hadn't noticed before? How would you sum up what the beast is trying to do? Yes, and how does he mimic? How does he do it? Okay, all right, so um, definitely there's no love there, that's right, but he imitates God in all kinds of different ways. What are his sort of tactics? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically, you know, it's, it's never quite the whole thing, is it? It, it, it's, it goes so far so that there's a resemblance each time, but um, you don't find that actually you can ever really pull it off. Now, if you work through the whole thing, I think you would see, you know, throughout, uh, but certainly in the first section of the table, you find that 
Uh, God the Trinity is clearly taught throughout Scripture, but also implies uh, various points in the book of Revelation. And you find this uh, extraordinary satanic trinity, the dragon and the two beasts, uh, the second beast um, and all the false prophet, seems to sort of take up some of the functions and roles of the Holy Spirit. And so you can see a number of ways in which it's sort of pastiche. I think it's one of the things about Satan is that he doesn't have an original thought in his head. He can't, he can't start from scratch. He has to parody and distort something else. And so you find uh, God the Father creates humanity, and you can see that in Genesis, obviously. He's the originator of the plan. Well, in the, the Satanic Trinity, you find that the dragon creates the beast. Christ the Son is in the image of God the Father. We see that in Colossians, for instance. And the beast bears the image of the dragon, And you have all this business about uh, the sort of different heads and horns and stuff, and those are sort of symbols of power and authority. Just as the Holy Spirit is the witness to the world of what God has done and who he is, you find that the false prophet works, does similar things. He works miraculous signs. Uh, He promotes the worship of the beast, just as the Spirit promotes the worship of the Christ. And uh, he uh, goes around basically exercising the same authority that the first beast has, which is sort of in a parallel to the Holy Spirit being another counselor like Jesus, as you see in John's Gospel, another of the same. And so uh, you find the second beast or the false prophet taking on that sort of role. And of course, in contrast to the Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth, you find that the the false prophet deceives Now, chapter 13 of Revelation, as as you'll have been looking at when you focus in on the beast, chapter 13 basically sums up the core values of the enemy, if you like. And um, so I've summed it up, you know, well, they both go for the diadems thing. There's the the name that is important to them, power. There's a a sort of spoof resurrection. Um, It calls on people to worship and praise. And then you have this business of the seals and a nation of people dedicated to worship. Now, what I want to do as we go on is just to see how throughout these chapters, the two sides are pitted against each other. And the question, obviously, is, you know, who's going to win? But uh, before we move on to that, I want to play you some music. Now, before you completely jump down my throat and accuse me of romantic kitsch, This is uh, not the lady in red. This is Christopher's The Spanish Train, which you'll find the words over the page. And, you know, for some people, Christopher is a hero. For some others, he's the sort of personification of evil. I'm not going to enter into that particular debate at this stage. But I think that um, what you will find in this song written over 30 years ago is that I think he brilliantly captures the way many people think the world is. I'm not interested in what you think of the music. What I'm interested in is, is the way he tells this story to reveal theological truth or error. All right? Now, it's gonna, the sound's going to come out of that puny little projector. All right? So it's just as well you've got the words there, but you'll get the mood, even if you can't hear exactly what he's saying. All right, so have a listen to this. Now, I wonder what you thought of that. 
It's not exactly what the Bible teaches, and yet it seems to make more sense of our world, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just crude uh, imagery, you know, God and the devil playing games over the lives of people in railway accidents and tsunamis and terrorist escapades and all these sort of things. But actually, it somehow makes more sense than a world where God is sovereign. Also, you would think. It's certainly the way many people assume, isn't it? That actually what we're dealing with is living in a world of dualism. With God in the red corner, the devil in the blue corner, sometimes God wins, sometimes the devil wins. I mean, how else could an all-powerful, all-good and just God allow the things to happen that happen? Now, but you see, the question is, what I'm getting at is that this is the way it looks more naturally. I'm not saying I agree with it, all right? Panic not. But what I'm saying is I have a lot of sympathy with it because actually it does seem to do, make more sense of the fact that we live in a suffering world with a God who is supposed to be in control. And yet, why does the, these terrible things happen? Now, what we want to do is, is look at the sort of central chapters, chapters 13 and 14, in the middle of this section. I hope you've had a chance to read through this section this week. Um, if you haven't, I would strongly recommend you do it. But uh, I want to focus on 13 and 14, because in a sense, these take a step back from the cycles that we were thinking about last week in terms of you know, the trumpets and the bowls and all that stuff. And what do we find in chapter 13? Well, we find basically the work of the dragon's agents on earth, which are all part, obviously, of his grand scheme. And uh, we'll look at the two beasts. So what does the great fraudster, the father of lies, get up to? Well, here he is, the dragon or the great serpent, and astonishingly, it is not far off from the tactics of Nazi Germany. Or rather, perhaps we should put that the other way around, because the strut and bluster of a state machine it's just what the enemy loves to use to control people. The Nazis, you could say, are just one of a long and ugly line of state oppressors used by the deceiver. But the fact that the many regimes have been seen as the fulfillment of the beast down the generations is in itself revealing. Because I think it points to the truth of the notion that this is all about every generation. Every generation has been able to identify the beast in its own era. You can see that throughout Christian history. And I'm pretty sure that that is not an accident, but we'll find out why. And so every era has thought that it could identify the Antichrist or the beast. So uh, right in the earliest days, the Roman Emperor Domitian, uh, to some said the Pope during the Reformation era, more recently Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, and so on and so forth. So what does he get up to? Well, we first see the beast from the sea in the first ten verses of chapter 13, and I've called this uh, under the heading of political persecution. Now, I, I vividly remember a sermon by John Stott uh, a number of years ago. I think it was actually the very first time I came to All Souls. I was just an undergraduate um, and down in London for the weekend. And I think Uncle John was speaking on the Christian's attitude to the state from Romans 13, where it's, uh, Paul is quite clear that in order to be good citizens, we should be uh, prepared to obey the law and uh, 
play our full part in society. And we should be willing to submit to the authority of um, those in positions of leadership uh, because God has put them there. That's Paul's argument in Romans 13. But Uncle John went on to say, and I've never forgotten, that this submission is never equivalent to an absolute subservience to the state as if the state was everything. It is not, because the authority of the state is itself subverted by the one who rules it and to whom it will have to give an account. You see, God actually has authority over the state. And therefore, any Christian understanding of the role of the state and governments must hold Romans 13 and Revelation 13 together in tension. For there are times when the state completely fails to live up to its divine mandate to bring justice and peace. Instead, it oppresses and seeks to control. Take this very small illustration, which is rather closer to home than the sort of Stalins and Pol Pots of history. Many of you will have seen uh, Chariots of Fire. And uh, it's basically about these two uh, British athletes running the Olympic Games uh, after the First World War. And uh, Eric Liddell is a Scottish runner, and uh, he's a Christian, and he's summoned before a committee of Olympic grandees that includes the the then Prince of Wales, who went on to be Edward VIII, and the Duke of Sutherland and others. And basically, he's refusing to run on a Sunday. Do you remember the scene? And he's brought into this very grand, um, overwhelming hall uh, with his little committee sitting in a semicircle, and he's got to defend his position. And... um, Basically, the Duke of Sutherland complains about Liddell's refusal to run on a Sunday. And then one of the other grandees, Lord Birkenhead, said, Liddell, he is your future king. Are you refusing to shake his hand? Does your arrogance extend that far? Eric Liddell says, my arrogance, sir, extends as far as my conscience demands. Lord Birkenhead, fine, then let's hope that... that Uh, That is wide enough to give you room for manoeuvre. So then he goes into the committee, and Lord Condugan says, don't be impertinent, Little. Eric Little. The impertinence lies, sir, with those who seek to influence a man to deny his beliefs. Lord Condugan. In my day, it was king first, God after. The Duke of Sutherland. Yes, and the war to end all wars bitterly proved your point. Eric Liddell said this. God made countries, God made kings, and the rules by which they govern. And those rules say that the Sabbath is his, and I, for one, intend to keep it that way. Then the Prince of Wales says, There are times when we are asked to make sacrifices in the name of that loyalty, and without them our allegiance is worthless. As I see it for you, this is such a time. Eric Liddell. Sir, God knows I love my country, but I cannot make that sacrifice. Now, I'm not going to get into the debate about whether or not you should run on a Sunday. That's a, that's a complex and a different issue. But you've got to admire the fact that Little understood the tension perfectly between Romans 13 and Revelation 13. Yes, he understood that kings and governments are placed there by God to do right. But if and when those governments fail to enable 
let alone protect those who seek to do right, then one must disobey them. And the, the imagery of the beast in Revelation 13 is the image of one of voracious power. The ten horns on the seven heads are symbolic of absolute authority. And here the seven, the imagery of the seven, is not about perfection. It's more likely an allusion to the seven hills of Rome. Because, of course, that was the government in power when this was written. And this beast is a fearful animal and most likely represents the Roman emperor coming across the seas, conquering all he surveys. But instead of deriving its authority from God, the beast derives its authority from the dragon or the snake, the serpent. So you can see that in in verse 2. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns and each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Do you see that? The power of this beast is derived from the serpent. And in verse 3, you have that weird business of his apparently fatal wound. It's strange. But it's a pastiche of the wounds of the lamb. So look at verse 3. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and worshipped the beast. But do you notice, it's a mirage. It's not real. It just has the appearance of a wound that has been healed. And it's designed to draw attention. It's designed to be attractive and to amaze people. And that's exactly what happens. The world just, wow, this is amazing. In other words, what it does is to take the genuine and the good, namely the lamb who looked as as one slain, and uses it to deceive. Now, it's bizarre. There's no, no doubt about it. It is very strange, but it is revealing. Now, just think, for instance, how often... Uh, governments and states have tried to make national allegiance tantamount to religious allegiance. So the cult of the Roman emperor in the first century was developing at this time uh, that we were thinking about. So that basically, you know, it, it didn't start out with the first few emperors like Augustus, but later on, and certainly by the time this was written, it had become quite common practice whereby, you know, the Romans would say to anyone they invaded, look, we don't mind what gods you worship, just as long as you include our emperor as one of your gods. So they might like to put a statue of the emperor in your temple, for instance. That that might be a good idea. Or if you don't have a temple, you should certainly acknowledge his name, because, of course, Caesar is Lord. But this tactic has been going on for centuries, and it's been true in our times as well. Here's a chilling example again from Goebbels. Note how he uses Christian language. Okay, just listen to this. He's talking about Nazism, National Socialism. He says, National Socialism is a religion. All we lack is a religious genius capable of uprooting outmoded practices and putting new ones in their place. We lack traditions and ritual, but one day soon, National Socialism will be the religion of all Germans. My party is my church, and I believe I serve the Lord best if I do his will and liberate my oppressed people from the fetters of slavery. That is my gospel. 
And, of course, that entails the execution of millions of Jews, Christians, homosexuals, disabled people, and all kinds of other people. But the clincher of this whole scene is the worship in verse 4 of the dragon and of his agent, his beast. You see that in verse 4? Men worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worship the beast and ask, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Do you see that? It's chilling, isn't it? It's because he seems so overwhelming, so all-authoritative, so in control. I mean, you know, what alternative is there? You can't even conceive of an alternative. And yet it is a profoundly ugly and appalling twisting and distortion of truth. Because doesn't it remind you of some other parts of the Bible? What about in Psalm 35? My whole being will exclaim, Who is like you, O Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them, the poor and needy from those who rob them. Who's like you? And then that famous verse in Romans 8. What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you see it as an appalling, stealing, and usurping the throne of the one alone to whom it belongs. You see, this beast seems invincible. He seems overwhelmingly powerful. He seems to be the only one available. And he's driven by a lust for power and control. He is unstoppable. He is petrifying. And here is the biggest shock of them all. His power is exercised for one purpose. Look at verse 6. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander God's name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. That is his purpose, to attack God and destroy his people. In other words, to destroy anyone who's not on his side. And the division, therefore, is absolute. Look at verse 8. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. So there you have it. It's an either or, a black and white, a down the line. You either worship the beast or you worship the lamb. It's a life and death issue. And John notes in verse 10 with almost serene understatement, doesn't he? This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. But how does it go on? Chapter 13, we find another beast, the beast from the earth. And I've called this a matter of controlling ideology. As if things were bad enough, things get worse now. It seems that the beast has his own sort of number two, the beast of the earth. And it's likely that if the sea beast first represented the Roman emperor, then this one is like a sort of viceroy or governor. As verse 12 makes clear, he works for the beast and performs various signs to con the people with. In verse 14, he orders the worship of the first beast and makes life intolerable for those who don't comply. And this is done simply by the mark, the mark of the beast. And economic suffering is the first consequence. So if you look in verse 17... If you did not have that mark, you could not buy or sell. 
Now that, interestingly, is precisely what happened to Christians being persecuted in Asia Minor, or what we call Turkey now, which is where the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 are located. In Asia Minor, they suffered terribly because they were not able, in clear conscience, to engage in emperor worship. But you see, because in the ancient world, temples tended to be where all business was done, if you couldn't go in there, if you couldn't worship the emperor and you know, sort of say your little prayer as you went in and out, if you couldn't do that, you couldn't take any part in business. You couldn't have actually a livelihood. You were effectively excluding yourself from the public square. But there again have been many illustrations more recently, like those in the Eastern Bloc in communist countries, and uh, it still happens to some extent in, in China and certainly in other places. Uh, basically, under communism, it was not possible to get jobs or even a place at university unless you uh, signed a statement effectively saying that you believed in atheism and communism. Now, it's one thing to do that yourselves, but can you imagine how hard it must be when you know that you're denying your children an education for making such a stand. Oh, my child is very bright, but sorry, can't go to university because. We mustn't be naive about this. This is a, a historical reality. And the days are coming in our country when, who knows, in the name of political correctness, it becomes increasingly difficult to have influence or even hold senior positions. A friend of mine in politics said that actually he felt that it was becoming impossible for an evangelical to ever get elected to parliament and hold Christian principles on a number of issues. Because as soon as you try to speak about them, you find that you become untouchable and unelectable. No one will have you. Or... Um, what about recent days, you know, the business of adoption? If you want to adopt children, then you have to subscribe to all kinds of different uh, worldviews and so on, but, but they won't allow you to be Christian, necessarily, some will, but there are stories like this coming out more and more that actually Christians are not being allowed to adopt because of views on sexuality, on discipline and smacking and all that sort of thing. Now, again, I'm not going to go into all the sort of ins and outs of those issues, but People are being barred because of their faith conscience. It's not so difficult to imagine. And I guess maybe we will find ourselves more and more excluded by state ideologies because of our beliefs. And the temptation to shift and to bend is going to be huge, isn't it? We'll find all kinds of ways to justify it. You know, like trying to be able to be in the culture in order to reach it and so on. But... Well, there is a place for that sort of argument. We don't want to ghetto-wise. But we may find ourselves pushed out whether we like it or not. Which is a different matter altogether. We need wisdom, as verse 18 makes quite clear. Now, what is the standard operating procedure? It's fraud. As we finish chapter 13, be mindful that the whole edifice, the whole building is built on sand. It looks real, it looks invulnerable, it looks victorious. But it is a monstrous fraud because it is perpetrated by the father of lies. Don't believe a word he says, 
even if for a time he seems too high in power and too overwhelmingly in power to to destroy Christian lives. We've got to hold on to the perspective that this chapter gives us of drawing back the curtains to the way God sees things, that this is ultimately and eternally a lie. Uh, The great American lawyer Oliver Wendell Holmes once remarked, sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle that fits them all. Satan promises us the world, but the poet Milton said, all is false and hollow, though his tongue drops manna and makes the worse appear a better reason. All is false and hollow. But then the Lord has his alternative. John looks in chapter 14 and he sees not the beast but the lamb in Zion. A lamb on the mount, I've called him, in verses 1 to 6. Now these people also have a mark. Not the mark of the beast, but of the father's name. It's a mark of relationship. It's a mark of belonging, both in terms of being with the father, but also knowing his name. And just as we saw in the first chapter, what overwhelms us in chapter 14 is the sound. Waters roaring and thunders peeling, then music and singing. Now, you don't find any of the people of the beast singing. They're cowed in fear before the one they worship, which is very different. And verse 3, we see a very special song. It's a private song, special for only those who belong to this family, the 144,000. They are holy because they have not defiled themselves with women. Now, before you jump up and down about what that is, the implication here is of temple prostitution, which was rife in the ancient world. One way, it's it's very hard for us to get our heads around, but one way you would go to worship the gods and show your absolute commitment to them was to go and have sex with one of the temple prostitutes. And that would show your devotion. And basically what John is saying, that this lot, the 144,000... They refuse to do that. They bar themselves. They withdraw themselves from this business around the temple. Yes, they cut themselves off from commerce, but they keep themselves pure. And the description at the end of verse 4 is revealing. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and women and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, do you see that? They belong because they are bought. It is the finished work of the lamb on the cross. Do you see? The lamb has won. And these people belong to him. They have his stamp of approval. They have his mark. The beast controls by force. His fatal wound is just a mirage, a fraud to give the impression of care. But don't believe a word of it. However, the lamb has proved his love and won his victory. He shows the wounds to prove it. For there he purchased a people, and they are transformed into the people they were created to be and to be like the one who rescued them. There is no lie in their mouth. They are truthful. Do you see? Just as the one who bought them is truthful. Incidentally, do you see, therefore, that everybody has a mark? before you start sort of getting uptight about what the mark of the beast might be. Well, as soon as you try and work that out, you've also got to work out what the mark of the lamb is. 
And they're the people who worship rightly. And you see this in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 14. There's a global decree, verse 7, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the sea, and the springs of water. The Lamb's people want to worship him. But the call is made to all because he is the creator and the rightful king over all people. He is the one alone who is worthy of worship, not the dragon or the beast. They are just imposters. So what is the standard operating procedure for the lamb? Well, it's reality, isn't it? Truth is central. God's truth, God's reality. Don't believe the spin or the propaganda of the enemy. Don't believe the crowds or the tabloids. They are not arbiters of reality. Don't believe the adverts or the Hollywood happy endings. That's not the way things are. Uh, You know the story of the Truman Show? Basically, this uh, kid who is the first child to be adopted by a corporation ends up basically living his life on TV cameras. Totally manufactured life. And in response to the question of why it's taken Truman 29 years to begin to work out or to begin to question the nature of his life and the world around him, the person who created the Truman Show in the film is a character called Christoph, which is uh, no accident. There's full of religious uh, imagery and implications in the movie. But uh, Christoph articulates what is a sort of quiet desperation of our society. And according to the film, he says this, we accept the reality of the world with which we're presented. So what we see is what we assume is real. And we don't question it. As long as our basic biological needs are met, and as long as we're told what to dream and what to expect, then we are putty in anybody's hands. I mean, you know, the whole film is built around this bizarre, unreal premise that a whole life can be on TV for 29 years and and Truman would never realize it. And yet, it's not so strange a premise when you remember that actually the most enormous cosmic spiritual fraud has been perpetrated for centuries. And people drink it up. So I have to ask as I finish this bit, are you still in doubt about the future? You see, as we heard in the Spanish train song by Christopher, we're presented with a world that perhaps makes more intellectual sense to some. In other words, a dualistic world where good is battling against evil, a world where you never quite know who's going to win. But that's totally alien to the way the Bible thinks. It's not give and take. It's not one day one, another day another. No, God is sovereign, he's in control, and what's more, he is good and he is just. That's the hard thing, isn't it? It's all three at the same time, that God is in control, that God is good, and that he is just. If he was two of those things, you could cope. You could say, well, if he's good and just, you say, well, he wants this to be this way, but he doesn't have enough power to do anything about it. Or if he's just just and um, uh, in control but not good, then he's not going to have mercy necessarily, but he's going to bring about justice and punishment in the end, and, and that's the way it is. But the puzzle throughout the Bible is how he can be all three at the same time. Good, just, sovereign. 
And yet the Bible resolutely, deliberately, repeatedly affirms all three. And the book of Revelation is no exception. This is not a dualistic book. Because actually, as we've said again and again, and it's hinted on every line in the book of Revelation, the Lamb has won. There's no dualism. And in chapter 13, verse 8, we saw that he's the lamb slain from creation. The lamb has won already. The outcome is guaranteed. We know what's going to happen. Now, it's hard to get your head around that. It's hard to get your head around what that means, that it was God's plan for Jesus to die on the cross before humanity was even created. I can't understand that fully. But it is God's way of bringing glory to himself and ultimately to defeat death, sin, and the devil. The dragon's fortunes are just built on sand and his minions are doomed to failure because it's all built on lies and that is the most important thing to grasp tonight over all the other things we talk about. I cannot repeat it enough. Do not repeat him. He's been a liar since the garden. Because back in the garden, God said, if you eat of this uh, fruit, you will die. Certain, the Satan, uh, serpent said, you won't die. So who are you going to believe? Christ alone is worthy. And so as the contest gets worked out in chapters 12 and 17, you find a contrast between two women, the bride and the prostitute. The bride of Christ or the beast prostitute. In other words, church or anti-church. One has the mark of the father, the other has the mark of the beast. They belong to different animals, the lamb and the dragon. You see, there's a constant contrast Chapter 12, the enemy has sought to do his best to destroy the church, the bride, but to no avail. Chapter 12 is pretty scary. He provided a fraudulent alternative, the prostitute who is drunk on the blood of the saints. But who's going to win? Well, I'll leave you to look at chapter 12, verses 10 to 12. It's wonderful confidence here. The battle has been won already. Don't believe the prostitute's lies as she tries to destroy the bride. And then chapter 17 and 18, we find the glorious victory cry, Fallen is Babylon. We don't have time now, but the imagery of the prostitute is clearly that of the city of Rome in chapter 17, with its seven hills that was in opposition to the Lamb in the first century. But actually, I would argue that it stands for every state that opposes God and his people. And I think that's why it's called Babylon, not Rome, because this is the archetype of all the cities, of any city that is standing in opposition to God. Babylon and Babel, it's the same place. Genesis 11. It should be the Tower of Babylon. And here Babylon reemerges because it is the symbol of opposition to God. But chapter 18, verse 2, the outcome is certain As we sit here today, the outcome is certain. Fallen is Babel, is Babylon. And the response of all the merchants and the traders in the second half of chapter 18 is absolutely fascinating. Uh, You know, have a look at that sometime. Basically, these merchants are distraught because they'll lose their money. The whole economic edifice of the Roman Empire is at stake here. I have to say that with this sort of major economic downturn that's going on at the moment and the credit crunch and all these sort of things, I just wonder whether sometimes actually it is exposing our idolatry of capitalism, our worship of money, and what a fruitless idol it is. 
And certainly, I think, when you look at the end of chapter 18, I recognize our culture very clearly in that. But the main point for those who love God is obvious. The end will come because the Lamb has won. So I don't know what's going to happen in the future. You know, all empires grow and fall. I guess this is the American age. The day will come when the American empire will fall. The day will come when maybe it'll be the Indian and Chinese empires. They will grow and they will fall. No one thought the Roman Empire would ever fall. It seemed invincible. But that's why St. Augustine wrote the book, The City of God, when Rome was sacked. Because it seemed impossible. But he was forced, as many other people in his generation, to recognize that actually these edifices are built on sand, ultimately, if they're not built on God. And then chapter 19, they sing. A great alleluia. Glory to God, the King of kings, the Lord of hosts. I mean, it's wonderful that Handel set this in the Messiah, isn't it? Or Messiah, as it should be called. Handel did a great job. But it's fascinating, isn't it? I think half the people, perhaps most people who sing it, don't realize what the alleluia is about. It's about judgment. Alleluia, because God has judged and Babylon has fallen. Alleluia. That's fantastic news. And then chapter 19, 6 and 7. Alleluia, because of salvation. Praise for the rescuing king who comes to marry his bride, the church. How awesome is that? The prostitute is destroyed, the beast is overcome, and now the bride marries the lamb. Verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. And that is where we will leave it for now.